Good morning. Please be seated for this morning's scripture reading. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Um, the last few years, and I, I probably don't need to tell you this, have been fairly contentious in American culture. I think politics have always been pretty divisive, but maybe more so over the last handful of years as we even advance particular candidates and particular policies, it seems like we're kind of polarizing and gravitating to far distant ends of a spectrum. And the way that we talk to each other is pretty bitter, pretty sarcastic, pretty cynical and critical. Um, I think a lot of just the, the social issues that have all come to a head around the same period of time, like COVID, obviously, vaccinations, distancing didn't do anyone a, a great service in terms of healing relationships and bringing people together as we were physically distant from one another and therefore relationally distant from one another. But a whole, a whole series of things where, you know, the, the school-to-prison pipeline and defund the police and immigration and abortion and LGBTQ plus issues of, like, how do, we, how do we love people that believe a certain way or think a certain way and include them in our society? And, again, we have just raced to divisive and extreme positions on virtually everything. And... As Marty and I have been listening to podcasts, just driving around, two things kind of stood out to me. One was, again, it was a sermon on identity that just reminded me that the modern identity is more like you choose who you want to be. You kind of make yourself and establish yourself and then prove yourself. Whereas an ancient or traditional identity would have been kind of like, well, you're a boy or a girl or a man or a woman. So here's kind of your role. And other people would validate you for your ability to do that particular gender role or the role in the family or these different things. A modern identity is like I'm, I'm kind of throwing aside what other people say about me and I'm just either going to create myself or find myself. We use language like that. And the danger has become that we have so internalized our own identity as like, I am who I say I am, and no one can tell me any different, that now when we have a disagreement about convictions, priorities, even opinions about things, that we no longer feel like, hey, someone disagrees with this idea that I have, or someone disagrees with my opinion or conviction. It feels like this person disagrees with me, like the core of who I am, like I am being attacked. And so we get very defensive and we attack back, often with words, often with attitudes. Another thing that I recently, I, I'm not really on Twitter except when I need to talk to United Airlines about what they did and that kind of thing. Um, 
so I don't, I don't spend time on Twitter, but uh, we were actually listening to, and I believe it was one of, the, one of the original founders or programmers for Twitter who was acknowledging now all these years later that it's like if you feel like it's the divisive and the shrill voices that are really amplified on Twitter, it's because they are. It's because we've deliberately designed algorithms not to elevate the moderate voices or the voices that are bringing different perspectives together and saying, let's have a thoughtful conversation. They said, like, literally the way that we've programmed this is to set it up so that we are amplifying the most divisive and extreme positions because that's what sells. That's what people are clicking on and sharing is the most extreme position. And my concern is much less what goes on in culture, though we certainly as followers of Jesus want to be salt and light to this culture where we're actually seeing a renewal of culture. My concern is when I see some of the same dynamics just work their way back into the church where when we have, whether it's a personal hurt or disagreement, we're, we're humans and we sin against each other. We sin against each other in marriages. We sin against each other in friendships or friend groups of like, I wasn't included and I was hurt. And, and you feel all the things that people feel or you have the taking of social positions or political positions. And what, what scares me, what I think we're gonna talk about this morning briefly is that we have an opportunity as followers of Jesus not to simply replicate the divisive, angry, harsh, tones and actions of the world, but to show the world something completely different, which is we can have different opinions, perspectives, a diversity of backgrounds, ethnicities, races, genders, all these things, and still come together as we are, in fact, one in Christ, and, it, and exhibit and enjoy really deep unity, okay? So let me just quickly overview. So Vera read this morning Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Last October, November, we went through Ephesians chapter 1 through 3. Now in chapter 4, verse 1, you're going to see a major shift in the tone of this book, this short letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Ephesus or a group of churches. And the, the shift has been described a number of different ways. If you were here for kind of the first half of our series and we took a break for Advent and some vision casting, now we're back. But we're, we're doing a big shift that some people say it's a shift from doctrine to duty. Or it's a shift from the indicative mood of just statements that are true about God and about the gospel and about what he's done for you to more of an imperative mood, which is like, now you do this because of this. Okay, um, it's been described as going from explanation of theology to exhortation of like how you act on that theology. And what we're seeing is that God initiates in grace, chapters one through three, and we respond in obedience. And notice Paul's second word here is therefore. He says, I therefore... And again, it's, it's like catchy and it's cute and all that. But it's like in, in theology, when you see the word therefore, you ask yourself, what is it therefore? And because it's been a few months since we've been in this series, you may forget, like, therefore what? We're just jumping in with therefore. Well, the key is that our theology always has a therefore. Okay, anytime we're studying something that is true about the character of God or the work of God, or what he says, this is the identity of the church, or this is the nature of salvation, 
we don't just pack that into our mind and say, okay, now I believe something. Now I know something. There's a therefore. And some of you have appreciated this as you've gone through the new members class that as we, as we give you a statement of theology, we say we believe X, Y, Z about God or salvation. Therefore, here is what we choose to embody in our culture as a church as an implication of the theology that we believe. I remember in high school a number of times, one of my least favorite classes, just I'm not a math guy. And so one of my least favorite classes was this higher level advanced math, like AP class. And I did fine in it, but I, I remember a number of times I, you know, not in an argumentative way, I don't think, because, you know, I was 16, 17, I was, and I was a good kid. So I'm sure I was not argumentative, but I was like, when am I ever going to use this? You ever, you ever do that in class? You're sitting there and you're like, I'm learning about quadratic equations, and I have no plans of being like an architect or engineer or a discoverer of like some human genome or like I, anything, really. I just like... I just want to be a youth pastor, actually. I just want to, like, go bowling and eat pizza and talk to people about how they're doing with Jesus, right? And I would ask my teachers, like, when am I ever going to use this stuff? And they were like, trust me, you're going to use this stuff. And I'm here to tell you they lied. I, I have never used it. I have never needed quadratic equations, okay? And we can feel that way toward theology is my point. Like, when am I ever going to use this? And I'm not lying to you to say, we always circle back on God's grace that's foundational. Now, what do we do with this? How does this impact my life? How does this change my life? How does this renew me in the image of Jesus, my Savior, that I'm following, not just as a teacher and a rabbi, a source of wisdom, but as God, okay? And this, so there's a shift that we're going to have, and I, I'll probably say it often because I don't want you to forget. If we're jumping into the middle of chapter 5 and you're reading something where he's just like, do this or practice this, that is not divorced from chapters 1 through 3 where he says, I'm telling you to do this or practice this because all of this good news is true about God and his grace over you. Therefore, the second word here, therefore, because of who God is and because of what God has done for us and because of the relationship that God has called us into, therefore, now, let's live a certain way. And we're going to see here in chapter 4 that as Paul shifts from this indicative good statements about God to imperatives of like, here's how you live, the things that are of first importance to Paul are these two things, unity and holiness. Unity and holiness. And my one big idea for you this morning is that preserving and practicing Christian unity is a key response to the gospel. In other words, if you say, oh yeah, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, he's my savior, then a key implication of your belief is that you would labor to preserve and practice unity functionally, subjectively, existentially in your everyday life. Now, Paul's going to share with us these, these four points. I'm going to overview it, and then we'll go through this briefly this morning. He shows us the call to Christian unity, the creator of Christian unity, the content of Christian unity, and then the character of Christian unity. Um, and let me just remind you by way of background that Paul, who's writing this letter, is an apostle of Jesus. He's a sent one of Jesus with a message of good news. Paul has planted this church in Ephesus along with other helpers. He has moved on. Now many years later, 
and is hearing about issues, questions, concerns with this church that he planted, he's actually living under house arrest. You might notice in verse 1 where he says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord am writing to you and exhorting you. So we believe at this point in time he's probably living in house, under house arrest in Rome, writing to these people. My point is, like, this is the kind of person I want to listen to. Okay, as he's going to write these things and say these imperatives, do this, don't practice this. Your life can and should look like this, not like this. I'm just saying this is the kind of person I want to listen to because he has a personal investment in my life. And then I also look at him and say, here's a guy who's sacrificing everything, who, who has not just taken risks for the gospel. He's in prison for just simply sharing good news with Jew and Gentile alike. And the Jews didn't like that, and the Gentiles didn't like that, so here he is in prison for what he believes. And for me, it's kind of like reading Elizabeth Elliot or reading Nancy Guthrie, where I'm like, okay, you have skin in the game. You know what you're talking about because you have wrestled through, in Elizabeth Elliot's case, the death of a husband for taking the gospel to other people. Nancy Guthrie, um, two babies born with a very serious chromosomal uh, disease. If I'm, I don't know if I'm using the right word, but that she lost two little ones and then writes about hearing Jesus speak into your sorrow. And it's like, that's who I want to listen to, right? We're listening to someone like that. And notice first what he says, and I said, this is the call to Christian unity in verse 1. He literally says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And urge is the Greek parakaleo. Kaleo is call, okay? Para alongside. And actually, the parakaleo, paraclete, is used of the Holy Spirit, like called alongside to walk with us through this life as a, so now the word means counselor or teacher or guide or someone who exhorts, who encourages, who counsels you. This word urge means to lovingly insist on the truth. And that's what he's doing. He's saying, look, I know many of you, I love you, and I'm insisting that you walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. There's an urgency to this. I love this word, uh, worthy, axios. We get the word axiom. Uh, axioms are like self-obvious truths or whatever. Axios, there's, there's an idea of weight to it. So when he's saying walk worthy of the calling to which you would, would have been called, here's, here's kind of a picture I have. You know the old scales that you put a known weight on one side and then you're like, I'm measuring out how much grain or wine or olive oil or whatever. So the idea is if you were to put the weight of your calling on one side of that scale, the idea of walking worthy is what kind of life do I need to put on this side that corresponds to the calling so that they're even? That, that's a worthy walk. So I'm always you know, wanting to think that as a believer. If, if it's true that Jesus is this, and if it's true that he's done this for me, what, what kind of lifestyle is not earning that, but is simply responding to that in a way that is worthy of what I've already received? And uh, by way of just a very brief review of chapters 1 through 3, if you've forgotten what your calling is, he says, you know, big picture, you were, this sounds paradoxical, you were walking in death. Like spiritually, you were a corpse apart from the work of God to bring you alive. He's like, so your calling is out of death into life. And also the other thing he focuses on is it's a calling out of hostility into peace or harmony. So you had hostility with God because of your sin. You had hostility with the people around you. He goes, 
for two chapters, he goes into the hostility that exists between Jews and Gentiles because their beliefs and their practices and their traditions clashed with each other. And he's like, so, so you've been at war with everyone, and the gospel brings peace. The gospel brings harmony. So you've been called to this. You've been called into this mystery, he says, where you're, you're one body in Christ. You are one living temple in Christ. You are a new kingdom and nation of people, a new family. And the question that he's starting to ask now is, how do we live in light of something so wonderful? And I read this this week from one commentator who said, our problem is that we have a million-dollar salvation and a five-cent response. We have a million-dollar salvation, but then we don't really do the heavy lifting of saying, therefore, what kind of life corresponds to the gift I've received? And if I've received a million-dollar gift... I want a million-dollar response, again, not, not to pay it off, not to give it back, not to earn it, but simply because I love the one who gave me this million-dollar gift at the cost of himself. So with respect to unity, one of the questions I immediately start to ask is, so how do we create the kind of unity that corresponds to what God calls us to? And the short answer here from Paul is we don't. And that's your point, too, the creator of Christian unity. Because notice verse 3 where he says, as I'm urging you to certain practices, he said, we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What he's saying is the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is responsible for this unity that we enjoy. He is the creator. He's the author of this unity. And I think that is tremendous news because as we look around the church, and I mean even just one local church, let alone the church, you start realizing like, hey, there's some people in here that we have, we have different politics. We have different priorities. We have different upbringings, different, different history, different backgrounds that influence the way we think or immediately respond to all kinds of new input and data because of our backgrounds. We have different ages, different genders, different ethnicities, different opinions on literally everything. And if it were up to us to create unity, Amongst a group of people that are as diverse as that, I think it'd be a fool's errand. We, we would just never get there. So this is great news that he says, no, the Spirit is going to create this unity by his almighty power and by his love. Your job is simply to be a steward of the unity that you've received. And I think there's a parallel to creation. Remember like Genesis 1 and 2 where it's like, you're not responsible for making the world but I have given you stewardship of what I've made. So now it's like, you're not responsible for creating the unity in the first place. You are responsible for stewarding it in a way that brings human flourishing. That's the second point, the creator. It's God, good news, okay? Now the content, verses four through six. And I think this is important because it's important to know if, if we're unifying around something, what is it that we are unifying around? You ever walk into a meeting or you see a group of people and you just follow a crowd and you're like, okay, what, what, what is this about? What are we all unifying around? And it's important to hear Paul say he's not pushing unity for the sake of unity. It's not like unity is this amazing standalone virtue. It's like, what if it's unity around like a group of people who believe in poaching ivory? And so they're like, they're killing elephants and rhinos. And you're like, yeah, what are we unified about? And being like, ooh. No, I don't want to be unified with that. But it's also we're not unified around an undefined concept of just like, just, just unity. It's like, 
unity around what? Like, what are we, what are we looking at? What are we agreeing on? It's like, well, nothing. It's just, it's just unity. It's like, well, you, you can't really do that either. So Paul's going to say, here's the content of what we are unified around. And I think this is so practical because, again, it's, it's not even important that we as a church family are unified on everything, as in having one opinion on everything. One of the beauties of the church could be that we are unified around the things we should be unified around, and then there's diversity everywhere else. Like on, on the essential things, we're coming together in harmony and love, and because we also love one another, we make space for differences outside of that core unity. So what is this unity? And you'll notice seven things here. Seven things where he says, all Christians, whether you experience this or not day to day, all Christians share this. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And he's like, I'm not telling you to preserve unity at all costs, as if, again, as if unity is the premier virtue. He's saying, but these seven things that you already share, and let's just tick through them quickly. One body. What he's talking about there, because there are you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of local bodies. Like we are a local manifestation of Christ's body, Grace City. We're a local church. And we, there's a sense in which we're a body. But what he's talking about is there's a, a, a big body. Like, and he references this in chapter 2, verse 16. He's like, Jews and Gentiles, wherever they live, whatever generation they are, are reconciled into one body. That body is the body of Christ. So the one body is this body that believers all over the world are joined to this body of Christ. We're all reconciled to one another through his work on the cross. Then he says one spirit. So there aren't many spirits that we're listening to or following their advice or whatever. He says, like, there's, there's one Holy Spirit. It's the one that has secured your salvation and applied it to you and is your deposit until you get home. One hope. You know, like, practically speaking, on a, on a very low level, we're all hoping for different things. Some of you are hoping for a raise. Some of you are hoping to, to, to get over an illness, uh, whether minor and annoying or very serious. You, you could be hoping for all kinds of things. But he's talking about the one great hope, like the confident expectation that we share is, is the gospel, okay? One Lord, that's kurios, that's a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have many lords, many masters who have dominion over us, who have authority, who can tell us what to do. He's like, we ultimately submit ourselves to the lordship of Jesus. One faith, he says, and that's, that's not like my faith and my trust. It's more like it's used as a synonym for like the content of faith. Like what, what is it that we believe? So in a few minutes when we confess together the Apostles' Creed, for example, that, that's what he's referring to. Not, not the Apostles' Creed, which hadn't been written yet, but that content of faith of like, this is the core of what we believe. We don't believe a ton of different things. There's a core of our faith. One baptism, I mean, this one's kind of ironic because one of the, one of the arguments throughout church history, if you've tracked with this, is over the mode of baptism. Like, do you sprinkle? Do you, do you pour? Do you dunk? And that, that's not what Paul's referring to here. Like, one baptism, so we should be dunking everyone, right? No, he's, he's talking about... The Spirit's baptism, which is the Spirit identifying you with and, like, placing you in Christ. Like, you have died with Christ. You have been risen with Christ. 
That's this baptism. So ironically, however you were baptized as an outward sign, he's talking about that one inward spiritual act of God whereby you become a member of God's family. And then finally he says one, one God and Father. That's, that's Yahweh. So Christians, we don't have a pantheon of gods of like this God does this and this God does this and this God does this. He's like, no, we have one Father. And Jesus called him Abba. Okay, we are, we are brothers and sisters of one another because we share ultimately one spiritual father. And what I want, to, want you to see in this point about the content of our unity is that Christians have a lot in common. But we have very core stuff in common. And again, it's important that we, we rally around the same things. Those things are not our personal or our church's traditions, customs, worship style, methodologies that are all prone to change. And from culture to culture, if you travel the world, you'll see these look very different, different places. That's not what the unity is built around. Like we all worship with the same six songs. We all put, you know, three here and then one here. And then there's the prayer and the scripture reading and the sermon should be X long. Like you can do all kinds of things with all kinds of things and not worry about it. Pleasing to God. But we have this one Lord, one faith, one baptism kind of thing. And before I get to this last point, I just want to ask you very practically, do you have a bias toward unity? When you find yourself disagreeing, whether it's a theological point or just a a practical point or just you're hurt, you're offended. Do you have a bias toward unity where you're like, well, regardless of whatever's going on right now between me and her, me and him, our group and that group, we objectively have unity in Christ that we're called to preserve and protect and to practice. And that, I, I put this point last, and now we're actually going to go back to verses 2 through 3, because I, I wanted to end on the practical of, like, how do we do that? If God has called us to a therefore, an implication of the good news that we received in Jesus is that we are unified, how do we practice that? How do we actually enjoy that? And you'll notice that he shares in verses 2 through 3 five attitudes or actions. And I think they're actually a crossover where they're both. They're actions. They're actionable things. But they're attitudes that we carry around with us so that when that pressure point kind of jabs at us, we're in a place spiritually to say, like, I'm not going to divide over this. I'm not going to cause a pressure problem in the body of Christ over something like this. And I'm going to put the word practice in front of each of these because this is not just like, oh, the first is practice humility. I don't want you to think of it as just like, oh, humility. I want you to think like, am I practicing humility? Or to use Paul's words, am I walking in humility? Humility is a word that means lowliness of mind. Tim Keller says it's not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. Um, That's often misattributed to C.S. Lewis. I think what C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity is actually better than that. So let me just read you a short section. He says, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, that he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he's a nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you dislike him, it'll be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. 
he will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Does that make sense? Just, just going through life and just saying, because I'm, because I'm focused on Christ, because I'm focused on my opportunity to love other people in action and in word, I'm not sitting here always thinking, what is in my own best self-interest? And let me give you a couple opposites. Self-interest, like just pride of just like, I think very highly of myself and I think you should as well. And all of life becomes this external show of like, I'm managing my ego. I'm managing my reputation. What you think of me is really important to me. He's like, you're just going through life. And because your focus is on other things, again, you don't come across as like this, you know, the people that like the false humility of like, oh, no, like I could never encourage other people. I could never this. I could never that. Like that could actually be a form of pride that's worse than just being proud because you think you're humble. So it's not going through life like beating yourself up verbally, being condescending, just being like Eeyore. It's just simply like, I'm just not thinking of myself. I'm thinking of others. Practice humility. Number two, practice gentleness. Um, This particular word, you know, you think you think of Western culture. I mean, guys or or women, but are they like man? The, a quality that I'm looking for, like top three, at least top five, would be like gentleness. Like our culture doesn't value that kind of person. Our culture equates gentleness with like weakness. Of like, oh, you're 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 staying quiet here. You're timid. You're 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 a wimp or you're a spiritual wimp. Just because you can't keep up with the conversation or you don't have the guts to like stand up for something you really believe in. And that, that's a very unfortunate connection that we've made. Because in fact, gentleness is one of the gospel's common descriptors of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what you see in Jesus is not this timidity. What you see is an incredible strength that he knows under control. It's a meekness. Okay? The opposite of that would be like a harshness, going through life demanding rather than deferring. It would be having that strength, but instead of restraining that strength and thinking, how can this strength be best invested in the flourishing of others? It's, it's a kind of strength that's just like, I'm just going to control and overpower people. It's like bullying. And you know, bullies in spiritual culture, just pushy. Like, have to have your own way about everything. That's the opposite of this gentleness. Thirdly, he says, practice patience. Um, Interesting compound word here means long-burning or long-suffering. In the sense of long-burning, I I saw this video the other day. This guy was like, he cut a hole in the ice. He was ice fishing with dynamite. So he cut a hole in the ice, and he dropped the dynamite in the water, and he turned to run away, and he slipped on the ice. And so he's laying right next to the hole, and then like kaboom, and uh, you want something long burning, okay? If you're if you're lighting it, okay, and you're on ice and it's slippery, the, you know, the, like the the long fuse of like it's it's gonna take a while, and it's gonna take a lot of pushing and a lot of pressure before there's that kaboom from your personality. That I mean, that's the word he's using, or or like long suffering, like. I've been bearing up under a heavy load or intense pressure or the heat of a situation or conflict, and I'm just going to suffer long. That, that's, that's literally this word. And we could say well, the opposite is impatience, obviously. But I was thinking about my own impatience this week. 
which my family could tell you all about, because I, I have to work on this stuff too. And I was thinking very practically, like, why am I impatient right now? Like with my kids, with this circumstance, you know what I realized? And it's not like I've never realized this before, but I was like, I'm being impatient because you're getting in the way of my agenda. Like I want something to happen right here. And the fact that you can't find your jacket that, I mean, we just moved and it's like, I hung up hooks by the back door in a mud room. And it's like the fact that you can't take your fleece and do this with it. And like, now we're trying to go to church. And I got an agenda because we're ready to go to church. But how often that impatient spirit just comes from like, I have something that I want done right now, my way, and you are an obstacle to my agenda. So patience would be like, maybe you still have that agenda. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way, like an agenda. Just like I have something I need to do. But this person... And the unity that we enjoy in Jesus is more important to me than getting what I want on my terms, on my timeline. Patience. Fourthly, practice, he says, forbearance in love. It's another interesting word that means enduring through difficulty because of love. So it's not just that someone's pushing against your agenda and you have to be patient with them. It may be that, that you together are experiencing something very hard, but because of love, you continue to walk through it together. Like, hey, this is really hard financially. This is really hard in our health. This is really hard what's happening in our extended family. It's really hard with vocation. It's really hard with what's going in culture. It's really hard that sometimes you and I don't see eye to eye, but we're gonna continue to walk through this difficulty together instead of just giving up, which would be the opposite of this, giving up, walking away, canceling people, simply being intolerant. And then finally, fifthly, Paul calls us to practice peacemaking. Um, back to verse 3 that I mentioned earlier, this eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The idea here is a zealous preservation of harmony. And he uses an interesting kind of word picture here of like eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Bond is like a fetter. So he's using a word, if you saw it in the Greek, you would, if you can read Greek, you would recognize it's related to the word prisoner that he used back in verse 1. Um, there's this interesting part in uh, the, if you've seen the music video for Michael Jackson's Beat It, and there are gangs, and there's, a, there's kind of this climactic point where two of them from rivals are bound together at the wrist, and each has a knife. And it's a certain kind of duel. I mean, it was common to like Western culture, that you would have this kind of duel. You're bound together. Each has a knife, and maybe both of you are going to die. Maybe one of you is going to die, but you're going to have it out. What's fascinating about this particular word is he's almost like, what I want, instead of being pictured, like being bound together with someone that you hate and are trying to destroy before they destroy you, imagine that thing that binds you together is the peace of Christ. Okay, so now you're bound together with the peace of Christ, and you have a disagreement. You have a disagreement with that friend, that spouse, that other tribe in the church. You don't like what they're doing. They're not doing certain things fast enough or diverse enough or this or that. But you're bound together by the wrist, by the peace of Christ. And you're like, okay, we just got to acknowledge we are bound together by the peace of Christ. And we got to figure this out. We're not just going to go separate ways. 
we're not just going to exhibit intolerance and arrogance and posturing to get rid of a group of people that we disagree with or that we feel hurt by. It's, this is the attitude like, look, I know we have our differences. I know we've hurt each other, but we are bound together to work this out. And God has given us the resources to work this out. So instead of conflict, division, hostility, anger, criticizing, complaining, cynicism, it's like, no, what, what binds us together is the peace of Christ. Let's understand each other. Let's understand his will. Let's defer in love. Let's practice peacemaking. And again, we could take a bunch of situations from church, whether it's you know, individuals, uh, family units, this group of friends and that group of friends, or we could take bigger issues that are within denominations, networks of churches where we've all seen division in Christianity. And it is a big, just being honest, it is a big black eye on Christianity that God has given us all these tools and resources of the gospel has given us his very spirit and we still act just like everyone else. It's wrong, it's inexcusable. Like we should be repenting this morning to the degree that we find any of this pride, this love of power and control, this refusal to defer, this refusal just to be honest and say, hey, the reason why I'm being impatient right now is because I wanted to get somewhere five minutes ago and you are not letting me have what I want. And being that honest with ourselves of just like, what, what is really making me this irritable right now? It could be that minimal. So you see how practical this list is. Again, just to go through it and say, if you take that same situation that could be pressing all your buttons and you're like, I am committed, I am eager. It is urgent to me to practice humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance in love and peacemaking because we are in fact bound together by the peace of Christ. How would that change that situation? to make you more patient, more like, man, we live in a broken world and I'm called to do life in this hospital with this local group of people. Let's make it work. Let's make our marriages better. Let's make our friendships better. Let's have conversations that reach out and say, I wanna understand you and some of the things that you wanna see for our church instead of just caricaturing what you want, kind of deliberately misunderstanding you so that I don't have to deal with you. So God has made us one by reconciling us to himself and to one another in one body. What will we do with the reality, that objective reality? Are we passionate about preserving that unity, but also practicing that unity? And what would that say to a world that is just consumed with division and pride and frustration? If they looked in and were invited in and saw, man, y'all are so different, We'll come to that next week and the week after. The diversity of the church should be incredible. We should be, we should be intentionally working on the diversity of the church within unity. May God have his way in us this year to accomplish this.